Thank you for joining us. My name is Katie Heinley, and this is the Fisheries Podcast, weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Fisheries Pod. If you are the generous sort, you can be like Garrett, Ben, Jerry, Janet, Robin, and John and support the podcast on Patreon with either a recurring or one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Paul Kanaidi. Paul has been studying white sharks since 2008 when he volunteered to assist with the field operations on the tagging of Pacific Pelagics project. In 2009, he began his graduate studies focused on modeling and estimating white shark population parameters at Montana State University in Bozeman. After earning a master's degree in fish and wildlife management in 2015, he continued his work on white shark population dynamics, earning a doctorate degree in 2020. Paul splits his time between the mountains and rivers of Montana, where skiing, mountain biking, and rafting are his preferred outdoor pursuits, and the oceans and mountains of California, where he can be found surfing, hiking, and mountain biking when he's not looking for sharks. Paul is currently the president of the nonprofit organization, California White Shark Project, whose mission is to maintain the decades-long data set used to assess and monitor the population of sub-adult and adult white sharks off California. All right, welcome to the podcast, Paul. Hey, thank you, Katie. So... I always like to start with people's backgrounds. So where did your interest in fish and sharks in particular begin? Well, I grew up in Rhode Island, which is the ocean state. I grew up around water until I was about 20 years old or so. So I was influenced by, you know, being in and uh, around the water, fishing for blues and stripers and surfing. I kind of grew up in the generation of Jaws. So, you know, sharks were so mystical at, at the time, that movie, you know, it's super cliche to say, but it's kind of what drove home, this is what a white shark is. This is what sharks do. They swim around the ocean and look for, <laughs> with ill intent, looking to maim and eat you. So um, it was a uh, kind of an established paradigm at, at that time where the fear, it was very palpable. And, you know, a lot of people where I grew up, grew up in the mindset of the only good shark is a dead shark that had you know, shark fest of go out and kill as many as you can. And the winner gets a trophy kind of thing. And so I, I didn't really necessarily buy into that. Well, let me restate that. I, I say I bought into it when, you know, being (laughs) absolutely fearful and keeping my fingers and toes out of the water when I was surfing, just with that in the background of my mind. But um, eventually, you know, you spend enough time in the water, you kind of get less apprehensive each time. But fear kind of turns into fascination, especially when you try and learn about them. And so I, I read as much as I could, you know, Nat Geo being uh, the knowledge bank at that time for sharks, which was, again, we knew next to nothing about them. And then eventually I, what really kind of hooked me was working as a fisheries observer up in Alaska, working on fishing boats as a NOAA scientist, uh, collecting data on the catch of each vessel. And one of those vessels one day brought up three salmon sharks, I remember, off Kodiak. And to see them, you know, they came out of the nets onto the deck. They were alive. They were beautiful. The color was amazing. Just the, they're a very close cousin to the white shark. But, you know, that was like the first up close and personal viewing, I guess, of a live shark. And so that kind of interest was cemented with, with that experience and then the tune that they were the those sharks were subsequently 
not alive very soon after because it wasn't a big deal to kill the sharks. And since sharks, you know, salmon sharks eat a lot of salmon, they uh, quote unquote compete with the fishermen who then fish for salmon as well during the summertime. So in my mind, I was like, well, you know, these things probably serve a pretty important ecological function. They're being killed indiscriminately to the point where our government doesn't really isn't too concerned about it all. And um, or our managing agencies aren't very concerned at all. And so I tried to insert myself into any kind of research that I could. And in 2008, I applied as a to be a volunteer for a kind of a field assistant for somebody completing his PhD out of UC Davis along the coast of California studying white sharks. And so that's kind of where I came to fruition of where I started my career studying sharks. Awesome. I think I'm going to skip over the how you got to your current position question because that's kind of covered in your bio, but I still mm-hmm. want to ask because I think a lot of people are going to be curious about this. Yeah. So why did you choose Montana State University to get your degree at if you were studying white sharks instead of yeah. the university in California or somewhere else? All right. Yeah. No, I know this makes, you know, very little sense to most people. So every time I'm in Montana and I get asked what I'm studying, I say white sharks. <laughs> they're like, what? And then, you know, I'm in California and they're like, oh, you study white sharks. Where do you go to school? And I'm like, oh, Montana State. And they're like, what? So I make little sense to very many people. But um but, you know, Montana State University, just looking at the ecology department and the people within it and then the students and, and what they study from, you know, African wild dogs, weddell mm-hmm. seals in Antarctica, big cats in Africa, the wolves, bears and elk in our backyard in Yellowstone and you know, all the fish species in the rivers and streams, pollinators, the invertebrates, like it's a very eclectic bunch of really cool people doing really good research. And that was a very attractive thing to me, as well as the ratio of students to professors or uh, advisors. Mm -hmm. That was really attractive to me as well. And just like the environment of learning, I thought was what would fit better to me as a graduate student than California, where the ratios are, you know, 20 to one in some cases. And, you know, you have to kind of fight for an hour with your advisor to make sure you're on the right track. And so it it made sense to me. And, and then in my world of, you know, kind of quantitative analysis of wild populations, that really just meant that I could collect data wherever I wanted to bring those data back and then figure out how to conduct analysis with, you know, some very smart people at Montana State University. With, and I was fortunate enough to land a spot in mm-hmm. Dr. Jerry Rotella's lab, who is very high up in the market capture world where... Yeah. I was hoping to learn from. So it, everything kind of made sense to me. It it just seems to be kind of irrelevant where, you know, where I go to get the, yeah. those data. But I know it doesn't sound like a, a normal track, but that's all right. I don't, yeah. Most of the things I do are, you know, not, uh, not like the normal way of doing things, I guess. So did Jay already have funding for this project or did you bring funding in and got to decide which university you wanted to go to? No, I basically, I brought the project to Jay with, you know, what what we were doing, how we were marking sharks, and that's basically using the natural markings of the dorsal fin, of the unique pattern of notches and nicks in the trailing edge of the dorsal fin to, to identify it. So all you need is a mm-hmm. picture, really. It sparked his interest, and I didn't have funding at the time, 
I created my funding, uh, you know, through kind of other jobs and and stuff like that. And so, but Jay was very kind enough to just be like, you know, I can take you on and help you in any way I, I can. So he was my advisor in, in, you know, every way, shape and form, but I had to kind of bring out, you know, like the funding and stuff to mm-hmm. the table. Right. I was mostly curious because I feel like sharks are one of those really charismatic species that a lot of people want to work with and not a lot of mm-hmm. people actually know how to make that happen. <laughs> well, that's the thing. There's no like sharks are everybody wants to know about sharks, but there's no funding for right. sharks. There's very little funding for sharks. They're not marketable that you can't really for white sharks and can't fish for them. So there's not really any kind of set aside funding to learn about them. So it's kind of, it's very difficult to acquire funding. Right. I think that leads in well because lack of funding also leads to a lack of ability to study them and figure out these really interesting questions. So I don't know how to ask this without being too broad, but can you just give an overview on what we know about white sharks and kind of how that knowledge came to be? Yeah, sure. Um, So in California anyway, and I guess along the East Coast of the U.S., I think in the 70s and 80s and prior to that time, you know, given, like I said, there's there's no fisheries data to kind of glean anything from. Every once in a while, the small ones get caught in gill nets and stuff like that. But the big ones, so big that they don't really stay attached to any kind of fishing gear. So the big ones would only be seen by happenstance or when they would interact with people. And so mm-hmm. when you have an investigation you know, investigatory bite on humans, that's kind of when you would hear about these sharks or actually know uh, when and where a shark was along a coastline because you knew it bit somebody. Um, And that happens so rarely that it takes multiple decades to glean any kind of distribution along the coast of where and when these, these incidences occur. And so if you look at that, it seems like the highest frequency of incidences of investigatory bites by white sharks happened from Bodega Bay down to Santa Cruz and out to the Farallon Islands. And that's historically known as like the Red Triangle, kind of a colloquial term. And so that's kind of where like white sharks were thought to aggregate in high numbers at, at, during like the fall months kind of ish. And so this is kind of where Scott Anderson, who I consider the godfather of white shark research stepped in in 1987 as a bird bander at the Farallon Island. And so Scott Anderson is the most amazing naturalist I've ever had the good fortune of meeting and or hanging out with. He has an incredible eye and he puts the puzzle together very quickly of everything that he sees. And what I mean by that is that he's he would be a bird bander, but he's a fisherman at heart. And so he had one eye, you know, always scanning the ocean and he's also very attuned to birds as well. So he would see birds responding to a big blood stain in the water. And so what that blood stain turned out to be was a shark feeding on an elephant seal. And so the, the birds respond because they can get like the bits and pieces that are small enough for them to consume. So they kind of get really interested really quick. And you have this vortex of birds that points you right towards the blood spot and the uh, predation event. And so he's like, oh my gosh, like that's a white shark eating an elephant seal. And so once he saw that, he kept looking at the water more and more. And sure enough, he would see predation events. And so he's like, huh. And then one day he saw like a log, you know, like an old redwood tree floating through where the sharks 
tend to predate on elephant seals. And a shark came up and just kind of nibbled, <laughs> you know, did like a little bite on the, mm -hmm. on the log. And he's like, wow, I think these sharks seem to have really good vision and kind of see something. It doesn't smell like anything, but it, it seems like they see something that's shaped the right way they might come up and bite it. And so what he did was he got a fishing pole and started attaching various things like pool toys and rubber mats and all kinds of different things and, and throwing them out there. That's like a big floating lure. And sure enough, the sharks would come up and, and investigate and bite and, and sometimes breach on the, on the object. And so he, he, you know, that that's extremely exciting. And he's, in, he's also a very talented photographer. So he would get the pictures of these sharks doing their, thing and eventually started using surfboards and stuff like that which was allowed at the time just because and there's no nobody surfing at the fairlawn so he's, yeah. he's like okay well you know i'll see what they do and you know sure enough the surfboards got bitten and everything like that but he was starting to get an establishment of like okay these sharks are responding to this cue this visual cue and i'm able to take pictures of these sharks and document these interactions so then he's a very creative person. So he, he put a, and this is back in the you know late 80s and early 90s where our camera equipment wasn't anything close to what we have today. So he took a uh, igloo cooler, like a water cooler, and cut one end out and put a high eight video camera through the middle of a surfboard. So he cut a hole in the surfboard, put the igloo cooler through it at a 45 degree angle, because he, he seemed to think that the sharks came up at a 45 degree angle and just ran tape, hit the record button, threw the surfboard out there and waited to see if he could get anything. And he's got a compilation of some of the most, you know, probably scariest video you'll ever see as a surfer. But, you know, you, you, you the camera's pointing down into the deep blue void and then all of a sudden you see this little white, kind of you know that's the undertone of the white shark and it starts to get closer and closer and then all of a sudden this this thing is breaching on this camera and he got maybe 10 to 20 video clips of that put them together for a documentary and you know he, he actually won an emmy for that i can't remember for what probably a creative documentary or something but through his documentation he also started noticing marks scars and the nicks and notches on the dorsal fin and started saying oh i remember that shark from three years ago and going through his backlog of video and pictures he could identify that shark was here at the Farallon islands on october 15th and now it's october 20th three years later and here's that shark again so he he started to kind of snowball the methods of what we still use today on how we uh, learn about these sharks what we document and kind of started the data collection process so that's a long-winded uh, beginning to the story, but the, and so then he was started going out when there was a predation event, they would lower a skiff into the water and go out there on a 16 foot vessel or, um, or 14 foot at that time, I think a little tiny whaler and going out there to take underwater video and stuff like that and collecting information that way. So he created a way to get access to shark, you know, you can get close enough to film them from five feet away, two feet away, whatever it was. And so with that, there was tagging technology that was being implemented or designed. And you could get a tag with a tether and a dart. And if you could get close enough to kind of harpoon this dart and the tether to the shark, this tag would then be collecting 
information on what that shark experienced in terms of depth, temperature, light levels, and then it also has a record of time and date. And so what this tag could then do is extrapolate rough geolocation with light levels and date. What that would allow is for you to kind of get a broad ocean-based scale of where these sharks were going. Because up until that time, you knew that sharks were coastal. They would bite people intermittently. It seemed like they were in high high numbers in the fall months off the Farallons and along the central coast of California, but then everything would be quiet for a while. So were they still there? We don't know. Would they go north? Would they go south? But all the, the knowledge base at that time was that they were neuritic or uh, they would stay coastal. Mm-hmm. So what these tags, I think for the first time in 99, 1999, showed was that I think they put five tags on and these tags have a pre-programmed date to pop off. They're called pop-off archival tags or PAT tags. And so these tags popped off, I think, uh, six to eight months later. And when they popped off, they were in the middle of the ocean. And so they were, you know, if you draw a line from Hawaii to the tip of Baja, find that midpoint and draw the draw an area about the size of New Mexico around it, that's where the, these tags were clustered. And actually one of them made it all the way to Hawaii. But this cluster in the middle of the ocean seemed to be a little bit too coincidental to not be just, they just didn't go randomly out in the middle of the open ocean. They liked this one spot. So that was a huge breakthrough in migratory patterns of these sharks are coastal during you know the fall and early winter months. And then for some reason they go offshore for however long we don't know, but subsequent tagging of a lot more of these have, have really honed in the seasonal migration pattern of these sharks. So we know that the sharks are coastal from around August to February. It takes about a month for them to go out to this open ocean about 1,500 miles away. Then they hang out there for another five months, and then they come back. But they have high fidelity, so they come back to the same places along the coast. And then seems like they feed exclusively for five months until they repeat the same cycle. But we don't know why they go offshore. And that kind of clustered location in the middle of the ocean, something we call white shark cafe kind of ambiguously assigned for some place you might go get a bite to eat, but also someplace <laughs> that you might go to meet a uh, special someone. So, it's, you know, just kind of an open ended question at this point in time. Mm-hmm. So how did your work fit into, or like add to this long-term data set for your master's and your PhD? The fin ID is really the fundamental kind of data that I used for my master's and PhD. So the the dorsal fin identification is the way that we, you know, kind of mark an individual. That's a long lasting mark. We have, uh, I think the longest period of time between uh, pictures of fins is 27 years. And we also get the sex of the animal and then an estimated size every time we see that shark. And so in our study area, the smallest white sharks that we see are around seven to eight feet in length. They're the new recruits to the area they're the the little guys moving into an area with you know a lot much bigger conspecifics that are maybe a little less psych that they're there because white sharks are territorial as well they'll compete for the resources at these prime feeding grounds and so the questions that i had were a was what was the survival rate of these sharks basically nothing was known about the life history of these sharks or the or the very fundamental kind of population parameters. And so we we focused on survival 
for my master's just to get a sense on what proportion of the population is surviving on an annual basis. And it was across a wide range of size classes. And so I I dove in a little bit further and tried to get a, a size-specific survival rate across all length classes using these dorsal fin IDs, essentially. It's a mark recapture study, and Jay Rotella was very helpful in, in helping me do this, as well as some other characters as well. And then ultimately, we, we expanded that further to include estimated abundance and the associated population trends of each demographic group in the white sharks. Awesome. So is there a difference in the survival rate of smaller, bigger fish? Yeah. So the smaller ones have the lower survival rates or, you know, the highest mortality rates, I guess. The big ones, as you can imagine, are, you know, well-established. They're big enough to compete. They've probably been competing for decades. They're highly attuned to the prime feeding grounds. They're really good hunters versus the new recruits, which are, they haven't been hunting pinnipeds yet up until that point. So, you know, when they're, where they're born in the Southern California bite, you know, they're hunting squid, rays, fishes, other sharks, species, and whatever they can acquire and grab onto, they hold on for dear life until they can kind of consume it. Up until they get around seven or eight feet, um, they have like an ontogenetic shift in diet and habitat where they can move north into colder waters where they start to hunt for pinnipeds and they're kind of naive at this point. And so they, you know, they might investigate a pinniped and maybe latch onto it or bite onto it, but the pinnipeds are a bit more formidable and fight back with claws and their teeth and stuff like that. It's interesting because you see these seven or eight foot sharks. There's, I mean, they're very tiny compared to the 18 footers. They look really small, but they just have, they're marred with, with claw marks and bite marks inflicted by harbor seals and sea lions. We speculate anyway that if a shark loses an eye, um, their vision is so important to them that they're probably not going to do very well for very long and probably succumb to starvation at some point. As well as competing with other large sharks, we also see grievous injuries, bite marks on these little guys as well, that we can, again, imagine that some of them might not make it to the next year given interactions with conspecifics. And so... On average, we see a lot less of them in future sampling sessions in the much larger group. That is interesting. I think one of my issues when I do podcasts that are about a specific species is I have so many (laughs) side questions that it's hard to keep them contained. But I do want to ask one that might be a little bit silly, but I feel like I always hear of white sharks referred to as great white sharks. Do you know why? Is that not actually their common name or is that just like a, a shark week remnant? Oh, that's a good question. I'm not sure where like great white came from. White shark is the scientific vernacular. So we're, we kind of keep that as a conscious effort to to maintain. I think great white, if the story is right, they had, they used to call oceanic white tips lesser white sharks. Okay. And therefore, if you have a greater white shark, but then oceanic white tip kind of took over. And so then you're left with a great white shark. But I see. that... You never really know. I mean, white sharks have a lot of different names, like white pointer and man eater, all kinds of things. It's kind of a silly name when you see the animal because it's not really white. It's white on the belly, but that's really not what you see, mm-hmm. you know, for the most part. And then my other question is that white sharks are 
pretty much in all oceans, right? Mm -hmm. Are they all still one species or are there multiple subspecies across these different oceans? Yeah, so they're all one species. They're genetically distinct. So they've been kind of isolated by the ocean scales. So what we have are the California contingent and then you have a contingent off to, uh, population off Japan. They don't, from what we know so far, the genetic studies have suggested that they don't mix right now. Same with, you have South Africa, um, Australia, and New Zealand. Those, I think South Africa and Australia have some connectivity because, I mean, the biggest, I think the initial study was a shark tagged in South Africa that went to Australia and then was, went back again. It was like a, some amazing, like 11,000 miles journey that they documented with the tag and then the mediterranean historically had white sharks i think they're still there but they're quite rare the atlantic coast and so they, they have all these kind of discrete populations worldwide but there's little connectivity between them right cool but they can i you know if you were to take a white yeah. shark and decide put it in the pacific they would probably hang out and right mate and stuff. yeah is there any other just like really interesting tidbits about white sharks that you would like to talk about that we haven't chatted about yet? Um, sure. I mean, their behavior is always surprising to me. I think I've seen quite a few of them do some pretty remarkable things, I guess. I, I think one of the surprising things is how risk averse they are, even when they're big. Um, males are much more risk averse than females. Females have much more of a, a swagger to them. They're not afraid of much even when you kind of poke them with a tag they just they kind of shrug it off males you know if you poke them with a tag they'll kind of respond with tails on fire kind of a little thing but um but they they're very wary about what they do they've uh they they're i think they're a little bit calculating they're very smart they learn quickly you know we use a decoy that's in the shape of a seal silhouette kind of as a lure a visual cue that it doesn't taste like anything other than indoor outdoor carpet. So it's not something that they want when they bite into it. So the, the trick is for us is to keep it out of their mouth. So they don't get that kind of knowledge of this isn't something I want. So it's, they stay interested, reel the decoy in. Ideally the shark will swim around the boat trying to figure out what, what it is we are, but they're not malicious, aggressive, bite anything kind of creatures. Mm -hmm. They are fascinating due to the sheer size of some of these guys or, you know, that's kind of the awe-inspiring, you know, hair-raising kind of things that you see. Right. I think it'd be good to move into the White Shark Project, which you're currently the president of, and it's a nonprofit mm -hmm. to support this long-term monitoring. So how did the nonprofit come to exist? <laughs> um, out of necessity, really. <laughs> I didn't go to school to be president of a nonprofit, that's for sure, but this population monitoring study has been going on since 87. It's been supported by multiple entities, Stanford and Monterey Bay Aquarium being the most recent. You know, everybody's favorite experience, COVID, really messed things up with the closure of the doors to the Monterey Bay Aquarium. And as a research and conservation arm, we were supported from the extra money that ticket sales would create. So they would, they, we were supported dependent upon the Monterey Bay Aquarium being open, which is, you know, it's not in their business model to shut their doors and continue funding research. And so we were, we were kind of the first ones to go because they have a <laughs> thousands of animals to feed. So mm -hmm. 
they had to kind of shore up and figure it out. Given that we, in 2020, we got by through a GoFundMe site, just asking local people that knew about us to kind of help us put gas in boats to get out and sample for sharks the way that we know how to keep the information maintained. And, you know, I was told by multiple people like, oh, you know, we should get into a nonprofit and create your own entity and take large donations for tax write-off purposes and stuff like that. So we started that, you know, even, you know, it's less than a year old now still. So we started that in 2022 to keep things going. Scott and I are figuring out this game of fundraising and giving talks and, you know, the social media aspect. We have a, a wonderful person who knows much more than than Scott and I, who aren't of the generation of social media. So she's been really crushing it on Instagram. And it's just been a journey that I wasn't expecting to go on. But it's, again, it's out of necessity and just trying to really keep something that Scott and I are really passionate about alive and and ongoing. Mm-hmm. I maybe should have asked this prior to that next question, but has your monitoring changed at all since it started in the beginning? In terms of what, how, what, what, like what questions you ask. So I'm assuming tagging stays the same and taking pictures of fins, but has there mm-hmm. been anything added as like technology has advanced? Yeah. Yeah. So that was like, we were really ramping up and kind of at the forefront of tagging technology. We've used a total of four tagging technologies that would answer different questions. And we were kind of getting into sophisticated camera tagging, which was really cool to kind of dive into the world of what the white shark experiences and actually see for ourselves uh, the day in the life of a white shark with a point of view camera, like showing us as well as accelerometry and depth and temperature profiles and stuff like that. So we were kind of getting, you know, you know, in this really cool realm of of being able to apply, you know, really high-end technology to a to a large top predator. And so it's just you know, it's a it's a collaborative uh, effort of just asking really cool questions, figuring out ways to answer them. And then, you know, as a but as a fundamental data collection point, it's still just the fin ID. Right. Kind of that's what it all that's where every interaction starts with. And so anything after that is just kind of gravy in terms of data collection, if we have the tags and the resources to do it. But tagging is an expensive venture and <laughs> Scott and I are just trying to pay for gas. You know, right. California gas prices, oh my gosh, is uh <laughs> is the uh it adds up quick. Yeah. So if anyone we're wanting to help contribute to the California White Shark Project. How should they do that? Yeah, so people can go to californiawhitesharkproject.org and learn about what we do, why we do the things we do, and what we glean from it. And then there's a donate button on the website where if you want to support white shark research, 100% of the donations will go towards research costs and what it takes to get us out on the water to sample these sharks. Also, if you know people that might be interested in sharks, please pass along the website or share the website and follow us on Instagram at California White Shark Project to see some really cool pictures and videos that our social media specialist, Maxine, put together for us. Awesome. Is there anything else you wanted to chat about before we go into our final five questions? I guess what we've seen over the last few years has been atypical with 
We had a record-breaking year out at the Farallons this year. We had 69 animals identified over, I think, 12 days, which is very high. Alternatively, at off Tamales Point, our other sampling site, we've had kind of atypically low numbers. In 2020, the year of years, the uh, the hits kept coming where we would go out to Tamales Point, which is historically just you know a revolving door of, of individuals. And we didn't see a single shark until late November. And the total for the year was two versus, you know, an average number being around 45 or 50 per season. And this was right after I published my annual abundance and population trend paper that showed that adult males and females are slightly increasing in numbers over an eight-year period. And so it was like a feel-good kind of marine story that is very rare these days but now and then it's like 2020 we didn't say a single shark until november and i was like oh gosh and since then it really hasn't rebounded to normal yet like we only saw 16 animals this past year which again is just very low so something that we can't really see that's there's nothing obvious yet to us that was driving this kind of these low numbers and then alternatively there's high numbers of at the Farallon Islands, where that's going along with a, a really with low numbers of the preferred prey for elephant seals. And so you would expect horrible prey numbers to equate to low numbers of predators, but it's completely opposite and has been for the last two years. Is there a lot of fidelity of the sharks? Like, do the sharks that go to Tamales go to the Farallons as well, or do they stay in one area? No, that's a great question. So, so the Farallons are kind of like the varsity club, I call them. Like, they're the biggest kind of baddest white sharks on the coast. The length is the longest on average out there. So you don't see any seven or eight footers out there. You see mostly like 12 feet is a small shark for out there. And then you mostly see 15, 16, 17 footers out there. Conversely, Tamales, you have the whole range from seven to 18 or 19 feet, but the distribution is kind of towards the smaller end of, of size classes. But there are, what we do see is like, I call them Tamales graduates, where you have a shark come back every year to Tamales until it gets big enough to attempt to compete at the Farallons. And then it might get beat up and come back to Tamales, or it might succeed to feed and kind of defend itself, learn the ways of a, a adult white shark, and mm-hmm. then start to, we, we see it every year at Farallons. Awesome. Okay, I'm going to stop my random questions so you can get on with your day. (laughs) What we call the tough part of the interview is over, and we're down to the final five questions, which is a group of questions we ask each of the guests that come on the show. The first one might be easier for you than some other guests, but what is your favorite fish? Well, if white shark is off the table, you know, my mind goes to the to the mola mola or the ocean sunfish always makes me smile that we see quite a few of them while we're sitting out there for hours you know mm-hmm. and you know you sit out there for four or five hours without seeing anything and all of a sudden a mola comes cruising by i mean they're just like perfectly weird to me yeah and then we're also like kind of indirect bird experts or gull experts primarily we have tons of gulls that hang around and so the mola molas and the gulls have an interesting relationship where a mola mola will kind of chase around a a gull that's on sitting on the water and it'll like come up to it and lay on its side 
And sometimes the goal knows what to do, but most of the time the goal is like, what is that thing chasing me around? I'm just going to, like, they chase each other around. But a wise goal will, the mole is asking the goal or getting, trying to get the goal to pick off all the copepods that have, that have attached to the, to the various places along the body of the mola. So it's a kind of a win-win. So you have these goals picking these copepods off mola molas, and you're just like, what, you know, what are we looking at? <laughs> you know, it's just kind of a funny interaction, but that's, I don't know that fish always makes me smile, but uh, that, but then again, you have like hammerhead sharks, which have <laughs> always been, you know, my peak fascination since I was a little boy, just again, just highly evolved kind of very strange looking, really cool looking shark. I guess the the mola story kind of brought up another question with your monitoring when you're out there looking for white sharks. Do you also collect data on the other species that are out there just as they come about, or do you still just focus in on white shark data as much as no? You can? I mean, the only our method is only really attract white sharks, and so right. we we don't see any other shark out there while sampling for white sharks. Right. All right. Next question is: What is your favorite memory from your career so far? I mean the. F- First time, like the first time I saw a white shark was, it was a big one. It was like 16 feet. The 16 footers, anything kind of bigger than a 15 footer. It seems like after 15 feet, for every foot in length they grow, they grow a foot in girth kind of thing. They get comically wide. But, you know, it's also like a submarine kind of swimming through the water. And I remember it was like, we're in the marine layer, so it's just like dense fog like in a white room basically you can't see the land you can't really see anything really so you're just on a boat in the middle of nowhere all you can hear is bells ringing from the uh, marker buoys and stuff like that but i remember this thing came up and just did a a very casual glide by the decoy and then the, you know the water's silver and or it looks silver but the you know the dorsal fin came up and then you see the the caudal fin the tail come up behind it you know, it's a primal response, you know, your heart starts just like thumping and, you know, your brain is being like, Hey, you should probably get out of here. Like what I would like you to do is do everything you can to exit the situation. (laughs) But you know, you're just, it takes your breath away kind of thing. So that's always my go-to favorite thing, favorite moment. But you know, last year we had, I think four or five sharks at the same time swimming around our research boat up at the Fairline Islands, the smallest one being, you know, 14 feet. And that's really cool. I mean, that was with, you know, you're with some very dear colleagues and people that you've known for over a decade. And that's a pretty magical time as well. Yeah. All right. What's your dream job and or location? Dream job. I think I'm, living the dream job i don't you know we're not, i'm not making my dream salary but <laughs> i think i got the dream job location i i love it here it's weird to live in montana a thousand miles away from the ocean but if i you know if i ever got a salary of some kind to where i could afford to live in california maybe i'd go there but i'm happy with my arrangement it's, it's kind of like i have a migration pattern similar to the white sharks where you know both of us go to uh i go to the middle of the land and they go to the middle of the ocean and we meet in on the coast every every fall right (laughs) that's all right awesome if money was not an issue what is one project or question you'd like to answer money was not an issue um how well does reality have to factor into it like not at all yeah well i think the 
we were getting close to really dialing in our method of attaching cameras to the dorsal fin for a brief period of time. Like we had, we had up in that time, battery technologies allowed us to record for eight hours of a white chart swimming kind of thing. And then you're also collecting accelerometry and depth and temperature and stuff like that. So we were starting to really, by the way, that's like the most boring video in the world to watch <laughs> after the initial, like, Oh, there's its nose. That's so cool. It's swimming. And then you have to, they swim. 99% of the time so it's just watching a blue screen but every once in a while you might see a jellyfish or something like that but we haven't really gotten to the point where we captured a predation on on camera or, you know some kind of interaction with another shark or um, anything kind of you know incredible or but I think it's really hard to attach a clamp to a dorsal fin of a sweet free swimming white shark I think I've done it maybe 13 to 15 times or something like that um, and then after you attach it, you have to get it back and then you never know where they're going to pop up. So, you know, they pop up at a predetermined time and then it tells you where they are in the ocean and you hope that the ocean conditions are okay enough to you to, to go out and look for it. So, but yeah, I think that was something, that's something I would really like to continue and get a handle on as well as go out to the white shark cafe and have some kind of glass submarine and hang out there for a year and a half or something like right. that. <laughs> if money wasn't an issue and reality wasn't either. Yep. The last question is if there is one point or principle you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? I think it's something that is starting to happen and has started to happen over the last decade or so. But I think the fear mongering of white sharks is slowly coming to, you know, I think at least a a logical level where people aren't buying into it as much. They are not as, like I said earlier, malicious or swimming with ill intent on on us. I mean, if you think about it, we are the most immobile creatures in the water. So if they did see us as prey, we'd be the easiest things to get. So it's actually thankful that they're they can discern us from from the prey that they actually want. And so I think like they're that bad rap kind of is going away with a lot of effort from researchers and you know conservationists and people with drones over the water showing close kind of proximity to surfers and swimmers and nothing happens and so i think seeing that for ourselves and and knowing that if you're in the water and you've made that choice to go in the water that you're entering a wilderness that is just like anything else where you know you, you go walking around out here you have to assume that you might come in contact with a bear or something like that or a mountain lion it's kind of the same thing there and i think it's i think we're making headway on people not being just so so fearful of of white sharks and actually turning that kind of fear into like fascination and kind of bringing light to that kind of that darkness where every every you know our mind goes to when we just don't know anything about it so i think with information and education about what these sharks do and why and where and when we're making headway on getting a lot of public interest in these in these animals awesome well thank you so much for coming on the podcast today it was really fun hearing about your work and about the nonprofit that you all started i think we kind of covered this earlier but just in case there's a different way if you want to get a hold of you what's the best way for them to do that oh they can email me at california white shark project at gmail.com i think there's some other contact info on our website yeah feel free to email me any questions or if I need to clarify anything, I try to answer today. Awesome. 
I hope you all enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to get a hold of me or the podcast, you can find me at Katie Hindley on Twitter, and the podcast is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod, or send us an email to feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Katie Heinley. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, with information and education about what white sharks do and why, we can increase the public's interest and turn our fear to fascination. Thank you.